last week what we talked about is I made this statement. I pointed out that the resurrection uh, is the sign of God's new world breaking in right in the midst of our broken creation. That we live in a world that is not exactly as God intends. Where sin seems to be running rampant all over the place. But we could look at the resurrection and say, oh yes, God is alive. And, and yes, uh, the, the death has been defeated. But, but And those things are true. But even on a, on a maybe a deeper level, that the resurrection is the stamp of God's new world. Jesus got up out of the grave. God intends to restore all that is broken in this world. And, and his new world is coming about. And it's breaking in right now. In other words, we said this. Resurrection means Jesus is alive. Resurrection means that death is defeated. And resurrection means that God's new world is breaking in right here and right now. Sickness, despair, lies, cynicism. These all belong to death. And death does not belong. That's good news, church. And I thought if I gave a little growl at the end, you'd, hate, you'd give me an amen. But it's all good. I'm warming you up today. So, uh, so the world is being transformed as we know it. And the gospel then, under this framework, becomes an invitation. And, and, and that's what we had people respond to, is an invitation. In other words, the gospel invites us to two things. It invites us to experience God's new creation for ourselves. That, as we talked about this sort of this, this cosmic level redemption going on, a lot of times our tendency is to push that purely to the cosmic level and forget that part of that is that God wants to make us brand new. And Paul, in fact, says this in in 1 Corinthians. He says, if you are in Christ, you are made into a brand new creation. And, And so the gospel is an invitation for us to be made brand new. But it's also a commissioning where, where just after in the passage that we read last, last night, Jesus sends his disciples out. So on one level, we experience God's new world for ourselves, that we are made brand new. But then we are then sent out to go and proclaim the good news of God's new world breaking in and to become agents of his kingdom. And so it's this twofold thing where Easter was a one-time event, but its implication is its implication moves into our everyday lives. And we talked about that, how resurrection has sort of become this like once a year type of thing. And yes, it was an event. It happened. Jesus died, was dead, got up from the grave, is now alive. It's a one-time event, but its implications is, moves into every single day of our lives and deserves far more of our attention than just one day a year on Easter Sunday. And so Easter is sort of, the resurrection becomes central to the gospel itself. Okay, so that's where we were at last week. What I want to do this week is, is I want to talk about more, I want to talk more about exactly what does happen when we make this confession for Christ. When we, when we proclaim that, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and we're brought into that brand new life, what exactly is going on there? What happens there in that moment or in those moments as we are made brand new? Because I think that's really critical for us to understand, particularly if you're here last week, or if you're here today and you made a decision last week, and this week, let me tell you, the devil came against you, didn't he? 
And, and this week, after you, we celebrate the, the goodness of God and His resurrection, the devil is going to try to derail the work that God is doing in your life. That's why when we come together and we have a great Sunday morning and God speaks to you and, and He moves you toward obedience and, you're, and you're, you make a brand new commitment for Him and then Monday at work sucks. I know you're not supposed to say that from the pulpit, but I also live in the real world, Right? And you're like, what is going on? That's the enemy trying to derail what God has done in your life the day before. And so it's important for us to understand what does this new life look like that we've been given in Christ and that we enter into through confession. Now this confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, is, is often referred to as conversion. And conversion just carries all kinds of baggage. I mean, that, that terminology uh, for both people of faith and Christians and those who are not people of faith, when you start talking about conversion, all sorts of images start coming to mind and all sorts of baggage starts being brought up. And, and for the non-Christian, the, the term conversion can actually be offensive. And uh, be, because someone might say, you know, what's, what's so wrong with me that I need to be converted? And so when you, when you talk about people who, who aren't people of faith and you talk about the need of being converted, the, the, all of a sudden there's like, well, well, what's wrong with me? Is my life so bad? I, I do my best. I'm, I'm nice to people. And so it can be offensive. But for the, even for the Christian, the term conversion seems to some of us to be just a little bit too in your face, Right? Because here's the deal. We know that the Christian life is a journey. We know that the Christian life is a lifelong journey. And none of us who are people of faith would profess that that we act perfectly all the time. Right? And so when we talk about this dramatic conversion, some of us that have been people of faith for so long, we have a tendency to lose sight of the fact that there is a marked change. There is this, I'm made brand new. That doesn't mean that I'm all of a sudden made perfect. That doesn't mean that I will always act perfectly. But we seem to shortchange the work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. And so we feel like that we just say things like, they weren't really converted. They're just sort of like on a journey, right? And so converted, whether you're, a people of, whether, you're, whether you're a person of faith or whether you're not a person of faith, has some baggage. It has some implications in our life. Do you agree? Some of you are, are very quietly shaking your head. But here's, regardless of, of how we think about conversion, regardless of the baggage that the terminology carries, the book of Acts illustrates to us that Christianity... In the, in the, when it very first started, Christianity, in, it, in its most popular moments, and it continues today, Christianity grows through conversion. It grows through this profession, this confession, that Jesus is the Messiah, He's the Son of the living God, He is the Lord and the Savior of my life. That's how Christianity grows. That's how the body of Christ grows, is through conversion. In other words, conversion is, 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 in Christianity is not, sort, is not like a, a set of practices or, or even a set of um, doctrines that you take up. 
right? And a lot of times we understand the conversion to be that. That if I'm going to be converted, then I, then I sort of take up this set of doctrines. I, I take up this sort of pra- these practices. But, but really, Christianity is not a set of doctrines or practices that we take up. It is a power that takes us up. It's a power that takes us up. In other words, it's this transforming power that, that captures us. And so it's not just, in other words, we're not doing all the work. It's the Holy Spirit who does the work in our lives. And in fact, Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says that you need to be converted in order to see the kingdom of God. Now, it depends on what translation you use. Some, other, some others might say you must be changed. Uh, you must be, you know, all these sorts of things, converted, changed. Uh, it does, but regardless, the idea is the same. You must be Converted. There must be a change if you want to see the kingdom of God. And the word converted here, or the, the Greek word that the English were trying to get a hold of with, with uh, translating it in all different ways, it literally means this churning around. This churning around. In other words, I want to say to you that conversion is not a replacing of who you are, it's a refacing of who you are. Conversion does not replace you. Your temperament, your personality, your, your, your passions, they all stay the same. Conversion doesn't replace you. It refaces you. There's this churning around. It's, it's, it's this essence of God saying, this is who you are. This is who I've created you to be. Here's your set of passions. Here's your set of, of interests. Here's your personality. Here's your temperament. And then all of a sudden, the allegiance of all of those things moves from self or, or something else out here and moves to God. And so all of a sudden, my passion, where it was once self-serving in conversion, that is not replaced it's refaced so that now my passion is given over to serve God, not myself. That my, my temperament is, is used in, in, in relationships so that I might point to God, not someone else. And God begins to work on my temperament and my personality so that I would be more honoring to him. But the fear that some people have in converting to Jesus Christ is they all of a sudden feel like they're going to be a totally different person and that they will be replaced But the good news this morning is that in conversion, you are not replaced, you are refaced. There's a churning around. That's That's what this Greek is getting at. So you don't lose yourself. Yourself becomes an instrument for God to bring honor and praise to Him and to point to Him. So immediately, right, right here today, some of you, you've been, you've been doing this um, church thing. You're, you're thinking about Christ. You're thinking about Christianity. You're looking around. You're watching the lives of those who, prof- who profess uh, the name of Christ. You're wondering if this is for you. And your biggest fear, your biggest obstacle is, I don't want to lose myself. I don't want to be replaced in conversion. And the good news for you today is that conversion is a refacing. It's a turning around. It's a taking of who you are for God's glory. Because God created you in the first place. Now, he may have some work to do on your personality. He may have some work to do on your temperament. But he's not just going to throw out the baby with the bathwater. He's going to begin working on you and refacing you. So, 
I think the key point for us to, to begin to ask is how do we live deeply converted lives? As the people of God called to give our allegiance primarily to the kingdom of God, this God's new world that is breaking in in the midst of our broken world, if that's where our allegiance is to lie, then how do we live as truly and deeply converted people? Well, I think the first step is we've got to understand this thing of conversion and what it really means. And that's what we're going to tackle today. And I believe that the conversion of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 gives us some great insights into live as deeply converted people. And it helps us to understand this, this thing of being brought into new life. It helps us to understand it on, on, on many levels. Uh, for those of you that have made a faith confession, it helps you to under, begin to understand what is it that God has done inside of you. For those of you that want to, to share your faith and see people come, become converted, it helps you to understand what is it that you're pointing them to. And so this idea of understanding this new life that we're given in Christ is critical for all of us, regardless of where we're at in our faith today. And so that's what we're going to do. Now, as I mentioned, this is a lengthy passage. I'm going to do my best to work through it, but we're going to be in Acts chapter 10. I want to read verses 21 through 48. It'll be up on the screens. You can follow along in your Bible. Uh, but let's, let's uh, read this, this passage together. And again, uh, just stick with me uh, as it is a lengthy passage. I think I've said that enough. So here we go. Acts chapter 10, starting with verse 21, uh, all the way to the end of the chapter. Now Peter went down and he said to the men, I am the one that you're looking for, so why have you come? Now, I understand that this seems like we're, we're getting in the middle of a narrative, and we are, uh, but the context will, will become clear as we read along. The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and a God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. And a holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into his house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. Now the following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and called together his relatives and close friends. And as Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only human myself. Now, while talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, we are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with Gentiles or to visit them. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask, why have you sent for me? Cornelius answered, three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon, when suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and he has remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the, in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good for you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Well, then Peter began to speak. 
I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts those from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God has sent uh, to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened through the, throughout the providence in Judea, uh, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, and how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good things and healing all those who were, who were under the power of the devil, because God was with them. And so we, God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And then they killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. And by us who ate and drank with him after he had rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God has appointed as judge of the living and the dead and all the prophets testified to him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name now while peter was still speaking these words presenting the gospel basically the holy spirit came on all who had heard the message and the circumcised believers who had come with peter were astonished at the gift of the holy spirit that it had been poured out even on the gentiles for when they heard him speak, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Now, what I want to share with you are some principles of conversion, principles of new life in Christ. And I believe this story illustrates them, illustrates them to us very, very well. And, and let me frame the story a little bit. It's easy in a long reading of a passage of Scripture to sort of get lost in the narrative, lose the details of, of really what's happening. And so well, essentially what happens is... is uh, Peter comes to Cornelius' house and he asks this critical question. Why have you sent me? Why have you sent me? And that's a, that's a really important question for Peter to ask, especially of a man uh, like Cornelius. I mean, Cornelius is recorded as, as being faithful in his prayers. He's, he's praying three times a day, or he's, he's giving to the poor. He's praying. He, he's doing all of these things that you would, that you would expect, and, and yet... Peter comes to him to share the gospel with him. Now, we're going to talk about this a little bit more in the second point, but it's important that, Jesus, or that Peter asks, why did you send for me? And Cornelius' answer is this. I sent for you because God prompted me first to send for you. In other words, it's, in, in, it's this, this idea that I have sent for you because in some sense I have already been sent. The principle is, is this. Of a deeply converted life, of new life in Christ, the, the principle is not you have to have a vision of an angel appearing to you. Right? The principle is this. God is always chasing you. In other words, to have a deeply converted life, to experience new life in Christ, you did not seek him First, he was already seeking and calling you. Do you know that about the nature of God? 
I don't know where you're at in your life today. And I don't know how far away you seem from God or you feel from God. But I can stand on the authority of God's word today that he is chasing after you. That he loves you deeply and he desires to be in relationship with you. Cornelius was happy with himself. I mean, he's doing all of these good works. He's praying. He's giving to the poor. he He has no sense that he needs to be converted. He has no sense that he needs this brand new life that, that, that uh, is given to him in Christ. And yet, God speaks into his life. God is chasing him and says, send for Peter and then give your full attention to his message. And the principle, again, is that your search for God is a result of God's search for you. Your search for God is a result of God's search for you. Now, if you want a fancy theological term to write down and impress your friends, we call this provenient grace. Provenient grace. Grace that goes before. Grace that chases after us. In other words, conversion always comes through God's initiative. Always. And some of you that are, that are people of faith, and you've been walking with God for a long time, you, you've been given perspective to see this, right? I mean, every single one of us can say, can look back at our lives, at our moment of conversion, our moment of decision, and say, this is the evidence of how God was chasing me, how God was taking the initiative in my life, how God was calling me into his presence and into relationship. If, you're, if you are searching for God today, it is not because all of a sudden your heart desired God. It is because God has already been searching for you. And that you are responding to that through a search. Does that make sense? We are not capable of searching for God first. C.S. Lewis says this in his uh, spiritual autobiography. This is the idea. This is an exact quote, but, but the idea is, he, he says this, atheists talk about man's search for God. As far as I'm concerned, they might as well be talking about the mouse's search for the cat. The implication being, mice don't search for cats. Cats search for mice. God is chasing after you. God desires relationship with you. There's there's an old hymn that, that communicates this truth perfectly. It says this, "'Tis not that I did choose thee, for Lord, that I, for Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee, but thou hast chosen me. My heart owns none before thee. For thy rich grace I thirst. This knowing, if I love thee, thou must have loved me first. God loves you deeply. I don't know if you have a sense of his love for you. I don't know what you're going through in your life. But my heart and my prayer for you today is that you would have a renewed sense of his love for you. He loves you so much. And this is what we often point to, that he would die on the cross. That he would, he would be raised from the dead so that we might gain possession of life. But the continuing evidence of God's love is that he chases after us, that his grace is always going before us, and that he's calling us into relationship. 
Let me say this. A sense of his absence is a sign of his presence. In other words, if your heart aches for God, if you long for him in ways that you cannot identify or even understand, so many times we feel, we feel that, that ache for God and the natural conclusion is I cannot find him. I've searched and I cannot find him for I still ache with him, ache for him. And I would say to you, that ache is a sign of his presence. For you could not search for him on your own. The very fact that you miss his presence is him calling to you. And so if you're here today and you have not yet become a person of faith, you've not yet placed your faith in the saving grace of Jesus Christ, and you're in a place in your life where you ache for him and you long for him, a sense of his absence is a sign of his presence. That perhaps in those moments where you ache for him and are searching for him, he is closer than you know. We've named our our church after the story of the Emmaus Road in Luke 24. And uh, this, this story tells of two disciples who are traveling from Jerusalem to the town of Emmaus on Easter evening. And as they're traveling and they're, they're dealing with and wrestling with all that has happened in Jerusalem with this person named Jesus and his death and, and, and his, his uh, reported resurrection and what are we supposed to do with all of this? And, and then they are joined by this mystery traveler whom they don't recognize. And the scripture tells us that it's the resurrected Jesus. But they don't know that it's him. When they finally get to the town of Emmaus, it says that through the breaking of bread, their eyes were opened and they realized that it was Jesus that was with them all along. And their report is this. Weren't our hearts burning when we were on the trail? Wasn't, this, wasn't there this ache for him? And I would say to you so, many often, so, so often, our lives are exactly the same. We ache for him and we long for him. And that is a sign of his presence with you. He's inviting you. He's calling you. And all we can do is respond. Peter says, why in the world did you sin for me? And Cornelius, I I can sort of say, what was I supposed to do? An angel came and said that I should sin for you. God was chasing me. And so I sent for you. Now we've all gathered in this place in the presence of God to hear what you have to say. And Peter presents the gospel. So the first principle of new life in Christ is that God always initiates this new life. He always initiates conversion. Conversion always comes through God's initiative. Now the second principle I want to share with you uh, will, will feel a little awkward at first. Okay, okay but, but stick with me. Conversion comes through a challenge of religion or a challenge to religion. Conversion comes as a challenge 
to religion. Now let's, let's pick up on, on, on this sort of description of Cornelius. Cornelius was a man of virtue. He was a man of good morals. He was an upstanding person. He prayed. He gave to the poor. He did all of these things. And the angel recognizes this. When the angel appears before him, he says in verse 31, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and he has remembered your gifts to the poor. I mean, the angel in the presence of Cornelius says, you've done all these great things. You're, you're living a very moral and upstanding life. Great job. We would expect for him to say, then, God has heard your prayer. He has remembered your gifts to the poor. We would expect the angel to go on to say, great job. Others should be just like you. We would expect the angel to go on and say, in doing this, you have experienced the kingdom of God. But he doesn't say that. The angel appears to this upstanding, moral, praying, giving man and says, call for Peter. You need to be converted. Peter needs to share the gospel with you. And that flies right in the face of what we often think. Nicodemus in John chapter 3 has a... similar experience. Nicodemus is a man of credentials. He's a wealthy man. He's an upstanding man. And uh, he asks a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, you must be born again. There must be a change. There must be a conversion. You need to start from scratch. Jesus doesn't say you just need to tweak your life a little bit. Jesus doesn't say that you need to uh, just make a few minor adjustments here and there to your already good and moral life. Because Cornelius and Nicodemus, these folks were pulled together. They had their life all together. They had it under control. They were doing well. They were upstanding, moral, pulled together people. But they weren't deeply converted people. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And the angel says to Cornelius, go and hear the gospel from Peter, for you need to hear it. Here's the thing, when we, these men, had and represent what we often think of as the goal of salvation, they already embodied How many times when you think about salvation and and gaining new life in Christ, do you think about being saved to traditional values? And how many of you, when you think about being saved into, into relationship with Jesus Christ, think you make the move from Democrat to Republican? Now you're chuckling because you're uncomfortable. That's all good. Right? We think that to be saved is to be a person of traditional values. We often place that inside of the realm of of a certain political realm. We think that we're being saved to being nice. We think that we're being saved to a higher morality. But let me tell you, in John chapter 3, Nicodemus embodied all those things. In Acts chapter 10, Cornelius was a good, upstanding, moral man. Salvation, friends, is not salvation to religion. In fact, the true new life that God in Christ offers us is a challenge to religion. 
It's a challenge to say, this is not what it's all about. What it's all about is a relationship with this person named Jesus. And so it challenges sort of the the religious status quo, the high morality, and says, if that is your end goal, you've missed the boat. What your end goal should be is deeper and more significant relationship with the Savior and Messiah of the world. And out of that may come and will come morality. But let's not reduce the gospel to being saved to a particular religion or being saved to a particular set of beliefs. And just like I said in the beginning, conversion is in Christianity is not sort of taking up a set of doctrines and practices. The converting power of the Holy Spirit and Jesus in our lives takes us up and transforms us. And so true new life will come as a challenge to the religion. Conversion is a challenge to, high, to, to religion and higher morality. Because here's the deal. The problem with humanity is we put ourselves in the place of God. Have you seen that? The problem with humanity is we place ourselves in the place of God. And we make ourselves our own Savior. Now, there's two ways that we can make ourselves our own Savior. And these will come, I think, as a surprise for you. One, probably pretty obvious. The second one, maybe not so much. But, but the, the reason it's a challenge to religion and morality is because if religion and morality are, are the end goal, then we have a tendency to make ourselves our own Savior. Can I keep everything together on my own? Can I make enough money to get the big house and have the nice car? Can I do all of these things? Can I appear to my neighbors to be very put together and good and moral and religious because I go to church? But nothing in our heart has actually changed. Those things must be an overflow of our relationship with God. And so new life actually challenges religion and morality because we have a tendency to place ourselves in the place of God. Two ways that we do that. We break all the rules. We live like hell. And all the while we say, I'm my own person. God can't tell me to do that. That's the obvious one, right? I've made myself my own savior because I don't care what God thinks. I don't care what other people think. I'm just going to do my own thing. I'm going to live like hell and enjoy it. Do whatever, right? I'm just going to, it's this attitude of keeping God at arm's length. I don't need him. Thank you very much. I've got my life together. I'm going to do what I want. And I'm going to self-serve all the time. Rather than allow myself to be a conduit to the power of God. Where my life continually points to him. And offers him praise. I'm just going to let the praise stop at me. So that's one way. Is basically living like hell. I don't need God. I can do what I want. The second will come as a bigger surprise. Of ways that we make ourselves our own savior. The second way is to keep all the rules. Break all the rules. The second way is to keep all the rules. I'm so good that God will accept me. Look at my great moral life. I don't need a savior. I'm doing a pretty good job of keeping things all together by myself. Thank you. And I got to tell you that anytime that you minister in affluent areas, this is what you have to minister to. 
This idea of I can get everything, I've got all, everything all together on my own. I don't need any help. I don't need God. And in your self-righteousness, you have denied your need for a Savior. And so true new life is born out of this realization that I don't have it all together on my own, that I do need a Savior, and that Jesus is the one I need. He is the Savior of the world, the Messiah. So we're not being saved to being nice. We're not being saved to being Republican. We're not being saved to a higher morality. We're being saved into relationship with Christ, which overflows from there. But sometimes we masquerade our conversion by practicing really good religion. So conversion then is the beginning of a relationship with the risen Christ. New life is not getting religion. Have you heard that? Yeah, we don't hang out with them anymore. They got religion. New life in Christ is not getting religion. New life is relationship with God through Christ and his work empowered by the Spirit. Did you catch that? New life is relationship with God through Christ and his work on the cross and the resurrection and then empowered by the Holy Spirit in our daily walk. With God, through Christ, empowered by the Spirit. So new life is a challenge to religion and morality. All right, third one, last one. Is this helpful? Is this good? Third one. Conversion is a transformation of the Holy Spirit. Is a transformation of the Holy Spirit. Now, in, in verse 44 through 46, we see all this kind of work of the Spirit. Peter was still speaking, the word, speaking these words. The Holy Spirit came on those uh, who had heard the message. And then circumcised believers were, were astonished. They were given the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It had been poured out even among the Gentiles. You mean this group is included in the good news as well? Is a way of, of essentially what that's saying. And then what is the evidence? For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Now, before we get to these two signs of conversion of the Spirit, and some of you are like, how in the world is a Nazarene pastor going to talk about speaking in tongues? Don't worry, we'll get there, and it's going to be good, all right? And some of you are like, I don't even know what that means. Lord bless you. If you don't know what that means today, you are just in a blessed place, and that's just so good. Okay? But let's go back to 43. Verse 43. All the prophets testify him that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. This transformation of the Holy Spirit. It, let, me, let me tell you, the, the work of new life in you is the work of the Holy Spirit. If we were being saved to religion and morality, we could do it on our own. And the transformation would be accredited to us. Look at me. I go to church every week. Look at me. I'm nice to my neighbors. Look at me. I voted Republican. Right? That would be a work of our own selves. But that's not it. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that changes us. But that work is initiated through our willful act of believing in Jesus. In other words, the Holy Spirit is not just going to come in and trample you. There's, there's some sort of openness. God chases us. We respond to that chasing by opening our lives to him. And then the Holy Spirit transforms us. So here's, here's their willful act. It will come to everyone who believes in him for the forgiveness of sins. Now belief is, is sometimes reduced to this intellectual agreement to a particular set of facts. Right? Jesus existed. Yes. 
He died. Yes. He rose. Yes, I believe. Belief is not just an intellectual agreement. Belief is a recognition that Jesus is Lord, that he has died for the sin of the world, including mine, that he was resurrected to defeat death so that I might gain possession of life. And in this recognition, I am now agreeing that the ways in which I have lived have worked against this new life that God is trying to offer me. It's not just an intellectual agreement with a particular set of facts. It's this, it's much more deeply rooted in our lives and in our hearts than that. I believe this to be true and because I believe this to be true I'm going to begin to align my life with this reality. Do you know that what you what you do in your outward bodily life is oftentimes a reflection of what you really believe? That you can say one thing. In fact you can say anything. But what really governs your actions is what you truly believe. And so those who believe in Jesus will begin to align themselves with the resurrected life of Jesus and and the truths of him crucified, him resurrected, and the reality of the kingdom of God. And so belief, again, is not just intellectual agreement. It's much more deeply rooted than that. It's an alignment. uh, It's a recognition of what God has done and then aligning my life based on that. And so the transformation of the Holy Spirit comes first through my willful act of belief. And then it's the Holy Spirit that brings the transformation. These two signs. I've got to finish this up. Two signs of transformation. One is praising God. And, that, and some of you might say, oh, big deal. That's great. We praise God every day. I pray, you know, we just got done praising God through music. What's the big deal about that? Worship is giving ultimate value to something or someone. Worship is giving ultimate value to something or someone. And we can sing worship songs without really worshiping. Did you know that? Like worship is, is what is going on in your heart. And what really has the ultimate value in your heart. Here's some things in our culture that we tend to give ultimate value to. Many people in our culture will give ultimate value to approval. And so they will act any way, dress any way, become whoever they can in order to gain approval. What they value most in life is not God, it's approval of others. And sometimes that approval is shifted where I do, I'm trying to do so much to gain the approval of God. And so sometimes it even sounds really spiritual because it has something to do with God. But did you know that in trying to gain the approval of God, you're trying to gain something that you already possess? That God already loves you. That God is already chasing you. And so approval, adoration is another one. Those go hand in hand. Some people gain, give ultimate value to independence. I don't need you. I can do this on my own. I've got it. And how that plays out is, is, is in difficult times in our life, when we really need God to come in, the person whose ultimate value is independence will say this. Even under the guise of Christianity, even under the guise of, uh, of truly, deeply converted lives, we'll say, I got this, God. Thanks, but I got it. And what the ultimate value is, ultimately value is fierce independence. Independence. 
And we know that we're not independent. We're interdependent. We're like designed for community and relationship. Which is why it doesn't matter what church that you go to, if they're doing their job, they've got some way to connect you to other people. Because we're interdependent. God has designed us for relationship and for community. In our culture, we often, uh, what, what, what gains our value and what has ultimate value in our lives is production or utility. That something is only valuable in as much as it produces. And, and, and therefore, oftentimes that will translate to people. People are only valuable in so much as what they produce. Are, are you making a good use of yourself? Oh, you're doing that? That's such a waste because you're not producing anything. It's not, there's not any sort of utility to it. And so ultimately what these people value is what they produce. The way this plays out in their relationship with God is, God, what have you done for me? Have you produced anything in my life? Like I, I prayed here and you didn't come through. So you didn't, there was no production of peace, mercy, grace. Where was that? And so ultimately we devalue God because what we ultimately value is production, not God himself. And utility. Now, this is, an, this is another big one. I want to give an illustration to illustrate this. And I'm kind of hanging out here because I feel like it's super important that this sign, this evidence of praising God is critical to us understanding what really has ultimate value in our lives. Oftentimes in culture, it's power. Ultimately, what I value is power over people, over situations, whatever it is, I want to have power. Let me tell you the story of a, of a young man who was um, sexually active. Now, to say, to say sexually active is a bit of an understatement for this guy. Uh, I, I mean, he was, he was more like on a sexual conquest. Uh, it was just so directed towards sex with as many partners a, a, as possible. Uh, but then... He, he becomes a person of faith. Like the gospel is shared. He responds to the gospel and, and he becomes more moral. He stops sleeping with all these women. But when he's in a Bible study, he is domineering. He has to command the situation, the conversation, his opinion, his perspective always has to have the last word. And I think the question that we have to ask is, ultimately, what has value in his heart, has it really changed? And I would argue that maybe it hasn't. Because ultimately, what he values most is power. And that was expressed itself through sexual conquest, that as soon as I get to, to a spot in a relationship with a girl where I have sex with her, I'm done. And we saw that evidence in his life over and over and over again. As soon as they went to bed together, he wasn't interested. Because it demonstrated that he had power over these women. But then under a veil of religion, power still owned his heart. He had to have power over the Bible study. He had to have power over the conversation. He had to, to dominate every situation or circumstance that he found himself in. The thing that had ultimate value in his life had not changed. And so when the scripture says that these people, as a sign of their new life in God, new life in Christ, began praising God, it's a way of saying what had ultimate value in their life flipped a switch. And now God and God himself has ultimate value. And let me tell you, change will never come in your life until what you ultimately value changes. 
There has to be a switch in what you ultimately value before you will ever change in your life. Some of you have been fighting a sin or addiction or, or things for years and years and years. And you can't overcome it. And I would argue that part of that reason, I'm not naive to say that this is the one thing, but part of that reason is because what you ultimately value has not changed. And I would, I would encourage all of us to look deeply in our hearts and say, what is it that we ultimately value? And when that changes and our ultimate value is directed toward God, the new life bursts forth. What do we ultimately value? Give ultimate value to something. So heart praising God and making God the object of our worship, the person of our worship, the praise of our heart and our ultimate adoration. Now the second sign was speaking in tongues. Now, some people will look at the book, book of Acts and say, oh, there you have it. They spoke in tongues when they were filled with the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit came upon them. That's now prescriptive so that in order to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you have to speak in an unintelligible language. That simply cannot be, in my opinion, that cannot be backed up biblically. Because in Acts, about half the time when people, the Holy Spirit comes, comes on people, is how the scripture puts it, or the Holy Spirit fills people, half the time they speak in tongues. The other half, they do not. So this is not prescriptive. That in order to have the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in your life, you have to speak in tongues. You've heard that. There's lots of people that teach that. And and I just want to be upfront and honest. I don't agree with that. And I don't think it's biblical. Because it's not something that we see happening all the time. We cannot make this prescriptive. Something that you have to do. And or, or something that has to be a result of, of being filled with the Holy Spirit. So then the, uh, then the question becomes, why is it part of this narrative? Why is it important for praising God, ult- giving God ultimate adoration uh, of our heart? Why do we add in there speaking with tongues? Well, it really reaches us back to just a few chapters earlier in, at Pentecost where we have the first evidence of speaking in tongues. In fact, Peter says this in the very next chapter. He says, the Holy Spirit came on these Gentiles... This unexpected group of people, it came upon them just as it had come upon us in the beginning. And so Peter, reflecting on what happened at Cornelius' house, himself is reflecting on what happens at Pentecost. And and, and here's what I would argue. Pentecost, everyone heard the the very first sermon in their own language. And that's in in Acts chapter 2, we we get the tongues of fire coming down. And then then Peter himself stands up, gives this sermon, proclaims. That Jesus is uh, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. He's been crucified, resurrected. Now, if you will just believe, you'll you'll uh, be given the forgiveness of sins. Thousands of people respond. The very first sermon, what we hear is that everybody heard it in their own language. Now, I don't think this is the entire point of, of, of Pentecost, obviously, or even this passage. But I think there's something that this speaks to. There is no culture that is more appropriate than another to share the good news. Because what we see in Acts chapter 10 is is Peter first saying, first of all, I know that as as a Jew, I should not be in a Gentile's house. But the Lord has already told me I shouldn't proclaim any people to be unclean. And then when they say, we're all gathered together, let's hear what you have to say. The first thing that he says is, now I know that God does not show favoritism. 
right? So this, this idea of racism, this hierarchy of, of people groups is very, very clear in this passage. And it's beginning to break down those barriers and those walls. And then we get this reflection on Pentecost where everyone heard in their own language. Some of us tend to place our own people group being above other people groups, especially when it comes to effectiveness and sharing the gospel. And that is not a way to live in a truly converted life. In other words, a, a deeply converted and new life in Christ will, be, will begin to erase the barriers that we place that will separate ourselves from one another. Based on race, based on economic status, based on all these sorts of barriers that we tend to, to use in culture, the gospel says those barriers are not true anymore. And that's good news. In fact, I would, just as a way to, to bring this home, if you, if you cannot imagine being in God's new world with people of other races, colors, and languages, and you're uncomfortable with that fact, the Holy Spirit has work to do in your life. Because the gospel inherently erases those sort of barriers that we place up in our culture. And that's part of what this evidence of brand new life is here in speaking in tongues. Peter says it came upon them just like it came upon us in the beginning. There's no vehicle or cultural voice better than another to bring the good news. Because at Pentecost, everyone heard in their own language. And what do we see from there? The gospel spreads. All of those languages begin sharing the good news of the gospel. If that very first sermon had happened only in one particular language, it would seem as though that language is most effective for sharing the gospel. But, but Jesus and, and God in his wisdom and his providence gives the gift of languages or the gift of hearing. I don't know which one it is, whether, whether Peter speaks all the languages or he speaks one language and everyone hears it in their own language. That makes no difference. The, the, the important point is it spreads from there. And just as a point of illustration, did you know that people, other countries, other language, countries of other languages are now sending missionaries to the United States? And it used to be that only if you were English speaking, only if you were from the States, and only if you spoke English, could you go and be a missionary around the world. Well, guess what? Not anymore. We are now a mission field. And other and countries from around the world are sending people who do not speak our language to come and share the gospel. There is no better, there's no culture that is above another when it comes to sharing the new life in Christ. So, conversion comes through God's initiative. Conversion challenges religion and moves us toward relationship. Conversion uh, brings transformation through the Holy Spirit. And then let me end with one thought. I love this. Peter says in verse 47, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. Now we celebrated baptisms last week. And some of you have been around here a little while and I've, I've been asked the question, do we, do we do baptisms at this church? We do. If you have been given new life in Christ and have not been baptized, I would encourage you toward obedience to Christ and to God by illustrating that, that new life that you have through water baptism. Of dying 
to yourself and your old self and your sins and then being raised to new life in Christ. What a beautiful picture. And right back here in Acts, they're doing it. And as we get this this true conversion, this movement of the Holy Spirit on people's lives, the, the, the very next thing is... Who could possibly stop them from being baptized in water? Let me encourage you today. If you are ready to be baptized, we will do it next week. There is, there is no, it's not like, oh, we can only do baptisms once a quarter. There's none of that going on, man. If you are here today and you have experienced new life in Christ and God is leading you toward baptism, we celebrate that. And it would be my honor and my privilege as your pastor to baptize you whenever you're ready and as soon as you're ready. And so as God begins to bring new life in this community and as we begin to experience and see it happening, let's celebrate through baptism for that's a perfect illustration of what has gone on. And so I encourage you today, if you've not yet come to know Jesus, that during our reflection time, that you would initiate a relationship with him through prayer, that you would open yourself up to the transforming work and the power of the Holy Spirit.